Welcome to episode 19 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Dave Barker. Good evening. And Dan Wellington. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k, and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $1 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their website, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. So guys, <laughs> how are we all doing in this crazy, crazy world we're in? <laughs> uh, crazily. Yes, like unfortunately over here in the UK, we're recording on the eve of going into our second national lockdown. It's also uh, early bonfire night, which is a uh, annual celebration here where we set off fireworks. And since we're not going to be allowed out to celebrate it together, a lot of people have been setting them off early. So I apologize in advance if there's the occasional firework going off in the background. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the lockdown too. I've been prepping my lead mountain to make sure I can crack through a whole load more miniatures while I'm out still. And lockdown too. Next time it will be personal. <laughs> um, so yeah, so in uh, preparation for all that, we've got lots to talk about in you know the, the hobby world instead. So we've got a whole bunch of things on tonight's show, so it's probably going to be uh, quite a packed one. Um, so we've got our usual paint station garrison where we catch up with what we've all been working on between shows and what we probably plan to work on for the next certainly month at least. Um, we've got a few new announcements, uh, including an exciting new announcement from myself. Um, we are revisiting our community edge highlights because we've been getting some excellent work from our community members over on the Facebook group. Um, I'm actually not sure if we've got any games played or not. I haven't played any, but um, have you reviewed two? Actually, got any games to quickly? I, I have um, played some games. Oh, of course, uh, you yeah, have. In the recent past. <laughs> in the recent past, yes. I remember you, you uh, posted about it on both your blog and the Facebook group, haven't you? So, uh, yep. that's going to be a fun game to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I've got no more games in at all. Uh, lockdown's done for me, and uh, I can't get out and meet my friends, unfortunately. So. Uh, well, I'm a little bit behind on the games. We'll have to look forward to when you can next get out and play some more games. But um, yeah, it sounds like uh, Dan's had a, one good last hurrah before <laughs> lockdown two. Yeah, it was it was something. Um, and then we will move on to our main topic for tonight, which surprise surprise, it's Crusade. Hey, <laughs> in yeah. case you haven't gathered, Crusade is definitely a. Uh, a favourite of ours here on Narrative Wargamer. Um, and this time, we're going to be discussing the new mission pack for Crusade, Beyond the Veil, which is not only the first of its kind, but also like the first expansion for this new system. So 
there's lots of cool stuff in there to talk about. And um, I believe um, neither of you two have actually had a copy yet to have a glance through, have you? So it's going to be news to you as well. Yeah. So the, the Beyond the Veil, yes, I've got a copy of Beyond the Veil. So uh, I've had a look Oh, excellent. That. In that case, then. Yeah. That's two of us, at least. I'll just listen. Um, and then we do have a quick community spotlight um, at the end of the episode, but also it's kind of a little bit of a public service announcement <laughs> regarding the uh, hidden value in the latest issue of White Dwarf. So uh, stick around for that as you might uh, discover another little gem when it comes to new ways to play 40k. Uh, so yeah, unless there's anything else from uh, you guys, that's pretty much the intro sorted and uh we could probably move on to pin station garrison yeah let's crack on oh yeah let's get to it and see where we get to so we'll be back in a second guys and we're back guys so dan has kindly volunteered to go first with his pin station <laughs> so i've done i've been volunteered yes uh <laughs> right so uh i so over like at the start of the year, I ran out of my uh, my own personal plastic pile of shame. Uh, so I've started doing uh, other people's. I don't know how anyone manages to do that. You didn't. Yeah, feel I know. It's it's weird. Um, it's a, it feels like I feel clean. Strange. Uh, anyway, so um, recently I've been doing a few bits uh, for. October, I decided I wanted to paint something orky. Um, so I, I have a similar uh, idea. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have any orcs uh, that were unpainted, so I offered to paint someone else's stuff, um, and I ended up painting a burner bomber, uh, which was uh, really, uh, I really enjoyed it because my orcs are snake bites. They're not very technically advanced. I haven't got any of the planes. Um, so to me, it was like a new kit. So it was like, ah, it's cool. It's cool. Uh, and I decided I, I really liked it. And I, it almost made me want to buy one. Um, almost. But Yeah. But uh, my orcs can't figure out the power of light. So uh, never mind. Um, but yeah, I decided to paint it pink. Oh, um, yes. I remember seeing this one on your like some of your posts. It's, yeah. So- it- it's worth saying, it's not garish pink, is it? It's kind of yeah, it, I mean, like in, pink. It started quite garish. Oh, right. It, the, fir- the first stage was like uh, proper, um, you know, the uh, proper hot pink, like Barbie's plane colour. <laughs> um, but it got toned down with lots of weathering. Barbie's um, first war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the Barbie burner bonner. Yeah, yeah, so it's... Um, it, yeah, so it's inspired by the uh, the pink Spitfire that uh, there are pictures of on the internet that was used for I think for like um, attacking burning cities and stuff like this. Uh, so obviously, when there's fire kind of into the sky, it turns the sky slightly pink, and then you can have a plane flying through camouflage pink, apparently. So, orcs, it's a burner bomber. That makes perfect sense, right? Maybe. <laughs> So it, it started garish pink, then went nice, a paler pink, and then got covered in dust and dirt and grime. So it ended up being pretty much just like a dull reddish colour with lots of metal on it. 
Um, but I, I was pretty proud of it at the end. It turned out looking pretty cool. Uh, excuse to use lots of Forge World weathering powders and stuff on it. Uh, so I like that. Uh, and since then, I've uh, picked up some other stuff for other people. Uh, I'm currently painting through the the um, Blackstone Fortress adventurers. Oh, nice. Uh, which is a lot of fun because they're all individual cool characters. Um, which has been your favourite so far? Uh, well, I've been working through... So I started with the Amble, which is awesome. <laughs> Well-known uh, adventurer there, the Amble. Yeah, okay, so it's the adventurers and the Amble and the Zote. Um, it... I'm saving the Zote for last because he's awesome. Just remember, uh, I'm a child of Rogue Trader, so these are the, he's, Dan's absolutely right. You're not going to get any argument from me, Dan. I know, they are so good. <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, so Amble first, Zote last. Uh, and all the adventurers in the middle. You um, go through them alphabetically. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my my favourite of the models are the two Rattlings, um, uh, Ryan and Rouse, I believe. Uh, I've been painting them up today, uh, and they're a lot of fun. Uh, one of them has a fridge on his back, which is awesome. And, and they both have nice hairy feet, which I appreciate. Uh, I identify strongly with those models. <laughs> Too much information, Dan. Uh, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at, really. Awesome. Um, Dave, what about yourself? I'm sure you've got a long list of stuff that you've been working through, as you always seem to have. Uh, it's been a funny mix. I've been a bit of a hobby butterfly recently. I... Um, I've been painting 40k stuff, but I've been painting a little bit of non-40k stuff, so I'll, I'll, I'll glance over that quickly. But um, but what I've been painting that's been a bit more uh, Games Workshop related, I, I recently joined a face another Facebook group where it's a, it's a monthly hobby challenge, but it's a bit of an old hammer group. So they choose a really old white dwarf every month, and you can find, I wouldn't encourage anybody to do this, but you can find really old white dwarves in PDF form online if you don't own the <laughs> copy. Um, and... Uh, to choose a miniature house without white dwarf and paint it, the idea being to get through your old hammer lead pile, right? Um, so for for last month, for October, I found uh, the penultimate page was an advert for the old skeleton horde box set, <clears throat> the plastic skeleton, multi-part skeletons that they did many many years ago for fantasy. And I, I dug around in my bits box and I found two of those and a couple of twenty-five mil square bases, and, and got those painted up, which is mostly in contrast paints, and uh, I really enjoyed them. And they, they, as miniatures, they really stand the test of time. That model. Uh, and there was, was really the um, the very Jason and the Argonaut style skeletons. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I have an old vampire count army somewhere mm. in the of those. Yeah. And uh, you're right, like they're certainly not, you know, twenty ten plus Games Workshop <laughs> sculpts, but they're still pretty damn good. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that would be one of the most fun things I've painted for ages. Uh, the November challenge, I, I haven't dug it out of my bits box yet, but um, <clears throat> on the same place, the penultimate page, the advert is for the old uh, epic uh, uh, orcs and squats and uh, and Eldar miniatures, the simple plastic ones. Maybe maybe you guys are a little too young to remember those. Uh, but I will be painting epic squats uh, shortly. Uh, sorry, <clears throat> epic orcs shortly uh, with the nice. old uh, battle wagons and everything. So uh, I'm sure I'll put a post of those up on, on the Facebook group when they're done, as they're they're clo- they're fairly closely relevant. <laughs> so, but that's I'm, I'm drifting out of completed and it's a work in progress. 
<laughs> since I was last on the podcast, it's been a while. I, I got f- five flesh eater scouts done uh, for my uh, uh, game uh, with Dan uh, that I think Dan talked about last time he was on. The other Dan, <clears throat> Daniel, Cadian <laughs> Dan. Um, uh, I've finished five Ultramarine Terminators, uh, so I completed my first squad of ten Ultramarine Terminators since last I was last on in the, the second edition uh, style uh, with the, the Hazard Tribe Power Fists and everything. They're, they're great fun to work on. And I've been working on my second Lockdown Army, which is my Death Watch. And I think I've, I've answered <laughs> a few there. Um, so after finishing the Flesh Terrors, well, I'll keep adding to them. I never stop an army, but they, they are basically done. So now I'm focusing a bit more on the Death Watch. So I painted a Watchmaster uh, and a Librarian. Um, so my Watchmaster is a Rainbow Warrior, as you would expect from me. But um, Of course he is. I use the, the character model for the Librarian with a Raven Guard uh, shoulder pad. Um, so they've come out nicely. Um, uh, I've done five bikers for for the Death Watch as well. Yeah, first bomb bikers. Uh, uh, but I'm really pleased with the way they've come out. And uh, ten uh, Hellblasters. Um, so uh, one of the fun things I'm enjoying with this Death Watch project is just scrolling through the list of Space Marine chapters and going, "Oh, that's a cool shoulder pad. That's a cool." Shoulder pad. Do you have any favourite chapters that you've represented? Yeah. So, Rainbow Warriors, obviously. I think that's, that's first and foremost. Let's not avoid that. Um, I've rather enjoyed doing an Emperor's Pointy Stick from <laughs> Toys really? That's one of the primary yeah. Hellblasters. That, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Soul Drinker, a bit more serious, but um, creating the shoulder pad was difficult for that. So, I, I quite enjoyed that challenge. Uh, and I've not that I finished recently. One of the one of the first ones I painted. I painted some firstborn assault marines, and um, I painted a, a chapter symbol. It's not really a chapter symbol on one of their their shoulder pads, which is the uh, cover art to Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. The, the <laughs> and I, that's just his chapter symbol, right? I'm not going to explain it. That's just what it is. <laughs> and uh, that was fun recreating that little piece of classic design, classic on a shoulder pad scale. Nice. Nice. Took some took some time to get it right, but it, it was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, so bikers, Hellwatch blasters, and I'm working on uh, three inceptors at the moment, um, and, a, and a captain for the Death Watch. Uh, so so that's fun. Uh, but moving out, I've done as I said, I've been a bit of a hobby butterfly. Um, I'm quite tempted. Me and my friends are quite tempted with the. Uh, there's a guy called Precinct America, uh, Roby, Roby Jenkins, I think. Um, who is a games designer, and he's got a, a sci-fi, a couple of sci-fi games, one called Horizon Wars, which is a mass battle game, um, and one called Zero Dark, which is a, a sci-fi skirmish game. So I've, I've done a bit for both of those. I've not really posted my group because they're, they're not really relevant, but I've posted, I've done two six millimeter Horizon Wars armies uh, in the last three or four weeks. Uh, so about 12 bases of infantry and six mil, uh, with about... Um, 20 tanks, four flyers, and five mechs each, uh, which were fun. I quite enjoyed banging them out, one in yellow, quite bold, and one in green, a little bit more army colours, shall we say. Um, that's that. Uh, I've enjoyed those. And then for the, the skirmish scale one, I painted six bikers, uh, which I'll probably use for all sorts of things, but primarily they're intended for that. So it's the old cobblestone figures, uh, if, if anybody's aware of those metals. And then... Um, I got some Reaper Bones miniatures, so I've got uh, 14 little grey aliens. They're, they're about 20 millimetre size, but they're 28 millimetre scale. You know, they're just short. And um, 
two flying saucers to go with them as, as I called them support mechs, but um, <laughs> <it'll>, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've also got primed and ready to go um, uh, some bases of uh, dead cattle uh, to use with. <laughs> well, they're not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. I've not started painting those yet. So, yeah, I've finished quite a lot, done done a lot of variety, actually. Um, but I'm, uh, like I said, uh, yeah. I've also got on my desktop in front of me, I've just started painting the new Rainbow Warrior. Uh, no, he's not advertised as a Rainbow Warrior. I am painting him as a Rainbow Warrior. The uh, primary is Chaplin on a bike. Uh, nice. Which I think fits quite nicely with, uh, well, it's just a really nice model. Um, I think he's out of stock at the moment, but I'm sure he'll be back in stock. Because he's pretty yeah. popular. Yeah. I've got a Terminator Captain for my Ultramarines I'm slowly working on. I've got a Sanguinary, sanguinary Ancient for my Flesh Eaters. Uh, and then a couple more Reaper miniatures, the old Mr. Bones from the first Kickstarter and, and a Metal Reaper Death miniature with a, with a quite a nice um, hourglass in, in his hand and a Reaper, uh, a scythe in the other hand. So, so that's kind of fun. And then loads more stuff, but I think I'll probably bang on. <laughs> and so loads more. <laughs> it's never ending, is it, for you? I don't well, know how you, know, you find the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I've got a permanent setup. And, uh, and the way, I think I've talked about this before, but the way my uh, I'm set up now, I'm working at home. I work in tech. Um, I'm a manager. I, I tend to travel a lot before. Uh, and I've set up my laptop, wired that into... Uh, where I have my home computer, which is immediately behind where I'm sitting right now, which is my painting desk. So um, although I don't, unless I'm in a boring meeting where I just need to listen, in which case I I build a few models, um, at the end of the day, I can immediately turn around, sit down and paint for 10 minutes, and it's all set up, ready to go. I know what I'm doing. Or in the evenings or weekends, if I get a bit of spare time, I can just come in, sit down, do the next colour, do the next colour, do the next colour. And um, it's surprisingly efficient. Yeah, I mean, I have a a relatively sort of like rapid deployment paint station. So I've got one that's out of reach of the kids, which is um, typically still set up with whatever project piece I'm working on with the paints for that project right there. So it only takes me five minutes to get, you know, settled on the sofa with my water brushes, paints, models, and straight into it. So if I've got just even an hour, you know, I'll be doing that. If I've got half an hour and I've got the time, I'll probably play out and get a good 20 minutes done, which can be, you know, a good base layer or a good wash or something. You know, like you say, if you just do it regularly enough, it's surprising how quickly and effectively. Yeah, all that all adds up, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I certainly and never I... really have the time these days to just sit down and have like a free four hour painting session. So yeah. instead, if I can get an hour over four days, so an hour every day for like four days and that's that's where i find my time yeah I, I think the other thing i realized i did and i didn't realize this until earlier this week when i was talking to somebody on twitter somebody had said how do you guys that paint quickly and how do you paint more quickly and i sat back and thought before i replied and actually i realized what i do is i do that i sit back and think when i'm sat in front of the tv having tea and i don't want to listen to the latest news about our government or the american election or whatever i think about <laughs> i think about my what i want to do next on my painting project where am I? What do I want to do next? Which models have I built that I want to bring in next? Do I want to start painting my flesh? Is sanguinary guard first? Or shall I finish this some more of these death watch? You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm always approaching that 10 minutes, that 20 minutes, that hour that I've got for hobby time with a plan. I know what I want to do. I'm not, I don't spend my time sitting there looking at things, 
wondering what I'm going to do next yet, which can has him the past eating into my whole time. Yeah, it's it's very true. I'm I'm like that. I always have a pre-plan of what I'm going to be doing in any given period of hobby time. Like I have. Uh, I've got models lined up ready to be primed next time I have a period of time that's suitable for priming, but not for sitting down and painting. And they're in my list so that I know that as soon as I finish doing one thing, I can just go get the next primed thing that's ready to go. Ideally, it'll be something that's using the same color palette as what I've just finished or don't have to swap out my paints, unless I'm making a big shift from the end of one project to another. Um, or dependent on what I'm doing at a given time, I might pick a different thing. So, like right now, <laughs> as well, so I'll transition into what I'm working on. Um, I've got the first of my two battle wagons that uh, yeah. uh, I'm painting up. Now, right now, I'm just touching up the base coat with the um, from the blue paint. So, this is a dead simple, like just layering stage. Um, so I don't need to be paying a ton of attention to what I'm doing. It's the first color on the model, so it doesn't matter if I'm a little messier or tidier, which means it's perfect for me to do right now while I'm talking and recording. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm not having to pay a ton of attention to the little details. Like, I wouldn't pick up one of my Escher gangers and be trying to do, you know, a three-stage wet blend <laughs> on their outfit because that would be something that would be taking up more attention that I want to dedicate to it right now. But this is a period of time where I can be productive on other things, such as just painting in blue armor pa blue armor panels on this Luther Gleeman Russ. So <laughs> I knew that that's what I was going to sit down and do tonight. I haven't sat down and then tried to decide what I'm going to do and then go get the paints out to do that. You know, I already had it all ready to go. Are you going to suggest that I'm excessively brave because I'm, I'm quartering the sword on a Death Watch captain? <laughs> <laughs> Is it um, what? What is the finest detail you can paint while recording a podcast? Is that, <laughs> is that the challenge? I've done eyes regularly because I've got <laughs> a method that, that I know what I'm doing. Just like just like Tony just said, I've got I know what I'm doing with eyes. How my style is, what I do every time, and so long as I'm just concentrating to dab the paint in the right places, it's pretty automatic for me these days. Yeah, I could probably say that of um, the weathering that I do on my orcs because I use my a weathering stage as kind of like my air quotes edge highlight. Yeah, <laughs> I use it to you know edge all the armor panels and stuff, but my edging is this rough weathered beaten metal effect. Arguably, that has to be applied, you know, in a sensible amount in de delicate areas. But I do it that often that I can probably do it while doing the podcast. You shouldn't be applying weathering powder to your delicate areas, Tony. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you opened the door on that one. Uh, well, <laughs> other things that I'm working on. So myself, I still, I've got a large sector imperialis ruin that's on the go, but that's nearly finished now because I've got all of the external paneling basically finished. I need to make one more wash pass over the um, the gold, like eagles and stuff, and then they'll be at the right tonal level that I prefer for my city buildings and then i just need to color in the floor panels on the um the first floor of the building in fact there's a, there's a little shelf of a second floor as well so but i enjoy doing that because that's kind of the um that's the fun reward detail once i've got all 
the walls, the building, the doors, the windows, the ironworks, all the rest of it done, which sounds like a lot to say it's a terrain piece, but 70% of it is done with um, spray paint anyway. It's like just done with the cans. And then it's just a matter of a one layer and a wash on like the metal panels. Yeah. So that's nearly done. Um, I did finish the like the skywalk that I have for my ruins. So I've now, I own four sort of like large city block ruins and three of them, basically three of them are painted now. And I actually have um, sections on the first floor of each of them where there's a large enough space left in like either the cavities from where the wall's fallen in or from what is clearly an intentional structural gap to allow me to put in these like walkways between them so if i feel like doing a real cities of death game or, or if i want to repurpose the train for necromunda i can actually put in walkways and gantries between them um so i'm really pleased that that's finished now because it's a little bit of a, a diy project because it's basically taking sort of like a, a strip of uh, like plastic hard over solid base material and then mounting two thin walls of sector imperialis ruins along both edges yeah yeah i saw yeah. that it looks uh it looks the part definitely i can <laughs> see that i can see that coming into play uh in some some cool scenarios well uh, yeah like, I, I like this idea of creating multiple tiers to a battlefield if it's an environment that's suited for it and being able to actually have squad to squad combat transfer between building to building without having to go down to the ground level, I think it will be really cinematic. So it's, yeah. a, it's a decent width walkway. It's big enough for a um, what's the base size? Like what? What is a lot of contagion on? That's larger than a Terminator's base. Sixty uh, mil. Is it a 60 mil? I can't remember which one it is, but yeah. So basically, it's not wide enough for a dreadnought, you know, to walk on. But basically, any infantry model, I've, I've made it wide enough so that you can stand, like, two guardsmen side by side, or you can stagger, like, space marines, and you can still get, basically, a squad along it if you wanted. That must be 50 mil, then. Yeah, it's probably 50. I think that sounds right in my head. Um, and obviously, with it being a separate piece, I can move it, between you know from game to game it can be in a different position or between different buildings it's not mm. structurally built into two buildings as an adjoining bridge yeah um i also think yeah. it actually works quite nicely as a ramp down onto the aquila landing pad because i think that thing is four inches tall whereas yes. the building sections are five inches so it, it looks like it's intended to sort of Going out. I, I I imagine it's a bit like the tunnel you walk in when you go to get onto a plane in an airport. Okay. It always trends slightly down, doesn't it? Yeah, just that slightly angled sort of like corridor. It's still quite a, a solid structure, but it's leading onto like this landing pad. So I'm pleased with that. Um and I I've been keeping um like my spare wall sections so that as I buy more kits in the future. If I get enough spare wall sections, I can just make them into another like skywalk without having to get a whole building just to use them up. Um, and then eventually, I can have a whole crisscrossed system across a like a six by four table. So that's 
that's cool. Um, yeah, look forward to seeing those when you're able to finish them and post them up. That would sound good. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, the fourth building is the one that's currently intended to be the other half of that Skywalker's, like the primary structure, but it will work with any of my buildings. Um, then the other week, I actually got my hands on the new Death Maidens and Wild Runners for the Escher Gangs in Necromunda. Um, and I have since done my sub-assembly for the Death Maiden that I'm going to be using, and I haven't built any of the Wild Runners yet because I ran out of plastic glue. But I've got some more since, so next time I get a building session, I'm probably going to be putting together the Wild Runners and the... Uh, I can't remember what they're called, not the Fear Cats, the little pesky dino like lizard rat things <laughs> that they have. Um, so that'll be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a, an Escher Ganger with an explosive tip bow and arrow. That's going to be nice. Oh, I have to say, the Death Maiden, it, it's funny, I wouldn't typically do a, a model in sub-assemblies of that size, because, you know, she's only small by, like, a 40k model standard. She's a she's a regular human. Um, but she's got this massive headdress piece with, like, really flowing braided hair behind her. And on some of the regular Eshers, I don't mind doing it all as one piece because it's a single braid. But she's got like three braids that are all flowing out at wider angles. And if I had her head built on when I was trying to paint it, it would make trying to paint the entire back half of that of her torso and her legs a nightmare. Because you would not be able to get the brush in there. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that I'm doing that in, in a couple of pieces. That sounds fair enough. Yeah. yeah, some of those dynamic models, they, they, they can get you that way. I mean, the funny thing is the motivation is there to get painted because it, not even just from a gameplay standard, because it's probably going to be a little while till I get my next neck under in, but I want to see it built. Like, I haven't really had that chance to see the model all together in one piece because by necessity I'm having to do a bit of sub-assembly. Sure. I understand that. It's one of the reasons that um, my go check has not yet made it onto my uh, my paint station garrison is because I'd like to start getting painted, but I built him home, uh, and he's got you know flowing beards and hair going, and uh, I've got them a little bit of nerves about whether I can get get back up in there as I need to. I'll do it. I'll get. I'll I'll, I'll make myself do it at one point, but it's it's just that little bit of fear that's putting me off. I just, I, she's got such a lovely dynamic pose to her, and it's one of these models where the, like, the war gear that she's equipped with and the like, loadout she has in Necromunda just, it looks so cinematic for the model and how she behaves, so basically she's got this skill um, called Combat Virtuoso which means that she can fight with any bladed weapons, Mm -hmm. at basically arm's length more so than normal so like in Necromunda you can use weapons like whips or pole arms and you can fight like two or three inches away from you a bit like I think you can do in Age of Sigma um, I'm not sure if that's a thing or not or if that was an old edition of it but I think that's a thing anyway so she's got this rule that lets her do that but with swords and knives so <laughs> she doesn't actually have to get up to you to fight you because she, narratively she's either leaping around or darting about or doing very sort of like hit and run strikes to the point where you can never really get into arm's reach yourself 
or she's just outright like throwing these weapons at you sometimes. <laughs> it's not like um, Hela from um, Thor um, Ragnarok. <laughs> Literally just throwing knives and blades. Um, so yeah, like, and I've got around with like a stiletto sword and a power knife. So she's gonna, she's got this real sort of like swirling whirlwind of blades look to her. All the more reason why I need to be able to get the brush in there and uh, paint her up in some yep. assemblies. That sounds good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> when I uh, when I next get a chance to put some paint on it, I just need priming first. Um, so yeah, that's sort of everything. Oh, sorry. And then the one the one other thing is that I completed the second Boom Dakistan wagon. I actually finished that the other week, so I almost forgot about it, but. That was fun. I, I put I got some really nice pictures of that once it was uh, all finished, and the last little feature I did on it was my favorite part of it because it came together so well, and I was I was prepared to potentially scrap it off if it didn't work well, and like you know repaint it. But basically, I had one of the orc heads that's got like a bandana around the lower half of the face. Yeah. Um, so you know, he's a very topical and modern thinking orc. <laughs> Got his <laughs> mask. Um, I mean, it's, it's the driver from the Death Killer War Trike, but I've it's his head. But I've used him on the driver for the Stars Wagon because I think he looks really good with him leaning out the sort of cab window, uh, mort off in one hand and this uh, mask over his face. Yeah. And it's just the perfect size and shape that I was able to put um, one of the small orc fangs glyphs on the bandana, like it's a like a printed um, pattern on on the, the material. Um, so it looks like <laughs> these sort of like novelty masks you wear that have got um, you know patterns on the front of it, or it looks like something. Um, and right. It, it's these figurative orc tusks, and it looks exactly like I hoped it would do. Nice. It nice. fits the face perfectly. It fits the contours perfectly. And once I weathered it down just a little bit to sort of bring it into the same sort of tones as the mask, it's just come together lovely. And it looks like the sort of thing an orc might make if he was putting just enough effort into it that, you know, this was his, <laughs> this is his, ban- his bandana, his lucky bandana, and he is... He's going to wear it, and um, it's in his mind at least it's going to look cool. And I think it came off really well, so I was really pleased with that because I was prepared if it didn't sit right or it didn't come out smoothly, I was prepared to sort of like scrape it off and then just repaint the bandana and just be like, it's just going to be a material one. But no, I was pleased with that, and it, it really does just help draw the eye to this focal point on the model. So I was very pleased about that came out. Yeah, of course, cool. this is Lucky Scarf if it's in your, your army, right? Well, funnily enough, it's not blue. <laughs> because <laughs> the the majority of the armor plates around him is blue. So the bandana he's wearing is actually black um, with then these white tusks sort of like painted on it. Yeah. Um, I've been using sort of black and more traditionally sort of goth colors to sort of accent my Death Skull stuff just to break it up a little bit. Because um, you know all the orcs, they still understand the value and the meaning of some of the other colours. His bandana is black because he's the the biggest and meanest of the Boomdacker Snazwagon drivers. Right. You know, 
So just because he's a deaf school doesn't mean he isn't also going to show that he's, he's the biggest and the meanest. Oh, that's nice. That adds a bit more character to, to some individuals in the army. That's really good. Yeah, like um, Boss Knob on the Death Killer War Trike and his driver, they've both got black leather jackets on rather than sort of like blue colours because they're death skulls. They've got all the bits of blue armour plates and, you know, war gear, but they're showing off that they're the biggest and the meanest of the speed freaks in my warband because that's why they're um, the death killer war trike. They are the biggest and the meanest ones, so they're going to wear some black. Makes sense. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I've been up to on my own personal models. But then I have been uh, making some efforts to go beyond my own stuff, which we will discuss in a moment, because we've got one or two announcements to actually make. So we'll have a quick break and then we'll come back with some exciting news. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back, guys. So, one or two new announcements. First of all, the most important by far, we've got a new patron. Yay. Hooray. Yes, so thank you very much, Matt Grossvenor. And I apologize if I've just butchered your surname. Yes, so um, Matt was um, excellent enough to... um, he, he actually reached out to me after he discovered the show and he said he'd just binge watched all the last 17 episodes in like <laughs> weeks. So, um, perhaps he's an insomniac. Uh, perhaps that explains it. <laughs> well, he's, he's definitely very much into his 40k because um, he's actually one of the members of the Wooden Spoon Wargaming group. Um, okay. So, I've definitely been meaning to. Uh, take a closer look at some of the uh, content that he's doing over there. I think he's got some stuff up on YouTube and a few other places, but he's got some really nice like interviews with some what you would call minor forty k celebrities, you know, other sort of like content creators and stuff. Yeah. Um. So it was, I was very pleased actually to hear he was uh, enjoying the show so much. I mean, that that's a lot of hours of uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, and the funny thing was, I think he messaged me the day after I just put episode 18 up live. So I think he didn't know it was there and I, I was able to point him towards it. So I think he was very pleased as well. <laughs> there was another one for him to listen to. Um, so yes, thank you, Matt. Um, so your support is very much appreciated and it, it really is you know, helping with the uh, production costs of the show. It's almost nearly covering the cost of hosting the website, uh, hosting the podcast now. So um, I'll, I'll just be hey. really pleased once, you know, it starts to cover the costs for itself. 
That's that's all I want. I think that is literally the first goal on the patron page, is just to cover the costs. Um, so yes, thank you, Matt. Um, enjoy the show, and uh, you know, you're more than welcome to come on any time. Um, so yes, so that is the first announcement. Um, the second announcement is actually my big plans for October. So how very timely of me to be discussing it now in November. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are a member of the Facebook page, you will have actually already seen and heard about this. But as part of my October pledge, I've actually taken my first steps into the world of commission painting. So I have started and launched the Narrative Wah Painter <laughs> Painting Commission. <laughs> Is, is there any particular race or army that you specialise in, Tony? I don't know. It's quite hard to tell with a name like that, isn't it? It, it is. That's why well, I ask. Clearly, I have such expertise of painting space marines and years of experience of doing it. So I thought I'd start a channel for painting orcs. Excellent. <laughs> yes. So um, the Narrative Wire Painter uh, Commission Painting Service is something that I'm starting up now and I'm open for commissions and you can see all the sort of stuff that I do for my own orcs, for my Death Skulls over on the Facebook group or any of my like social feeds, they're all up there. If, if any of you do follow me on any of those platforms already, you probably have seen one or two things I've posted up there. Um, and I'm just really excited to paint more orcs for people. They are very nice orcs as well. Having yeah. seen them in the flesh, uh, I do approve. Oh, thank you. Like I, I feel like I, I certainly specialize in a good quality tabletop standard. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I'm very much more mm -hmm. a, an army painter than like a character model painter. Like I, I'm not someone who could spend twenty hours painting one model, but I could spend twenty hours happily painting an army. Yeah. Say ninety old boys. Yeah, say ninety old boys. I'm sure. There will be plenty of requests for ninety orc boys. It's <laughs> the bit that none of us enjoy painting in our orc army. Well, you say none of us, but I do. So, inspiring <laughs> orc war bosses out there with unpainted orc boys or otherwise grey mountains, like send them my way, and I'll be happy to you know give you a quote and uh, get them sorted for you. Because honestly, I think one of the things that I'm excited the most for with specialising in doing orc stuff is all the different like conversions and looted vehicles and just all the clan shenanigans that people are going to send my way because I think painting a bad boon is going to be a very different experience to painting snakebite more so than just painting like an imperial fist versus an ultramarine yeah you could paint some proper orcs instead of stupid blue ones yeah yeah I could probably dig out 90 of those old Monopause 2nd Edition orcs. <laughs> Send me an army of 2nd uh, Edition Gretchen. Yeah. <laughs> all their auto guns. Um, but yes, uh, like I, say, I, I can be reached via all the usual channels. So that primarily is um, sort of via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you would like to get in touch about any sort of quotes for I mean, to be clear, I won't just paint orcs. I will happily paint other things as well. But, like, orcs is certainly where I feel the most comfortable and I've got the most practice with and I feel I could deliver 
um, you know, quality I would be happy to deliver to people. You know, I don't want to be asked to paint my first ever imperial fist and disappoint <laughs> because I've not got experience of painting layers and layers of yellow power armor. <laughs> mm. um, but yes, like there's um, plenty of scope, so definitely get in touch if you would like to see your 90 orc boys painted <laughs> or if you'd like to see your battle wagons get their you know lick of red paint to go faster because honestly it will make such a difference and i know that there are plenty of orc players out there who have collections that they wish to see painted but maybe maybe trying to tackle that huge orc uh, that huge orc <laughs> that huge horde of orcs is uh, just something that you could just never bring yourself to get around to doing. Or even maybe just you don't enjoy painting it as much as you like playing with them. But that's what I'm here for. So please do get in touch. I'm happy to discuss any projects. Um, and I'm very excited to see what comes out and what comes my way. Because honestly, I'm just going to enjoy it. Sounds like a great adventure. Good luck, Tony. Yes, and you know, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing, like, you know, my commissions make their way back to people, and get to see them playing them in games, see them playing with their friends, you just see people enjoying having their painted orc hearts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you can get people to send you photos of uh, uh, them destroying some Imperials, that would be uh, nice, wouldn't it? It would. So, there are, however, there are plenty of you out there that do spectacular work of your own. So, why don't we jump over to our Community Edge highlights now to discuss some of the awesome stuff we've seen you guys up to in the Facebook group. And we're back, guys. And this time, we're going to be talking about all the cool stuff that you guys have been doing with your hobby time. So, uh, Dave, I believe you've seen one or two things that have taken your interest in the group. Yeah, it's great to see people continuing to work on stuff and posting stuff on the Facebook group, as always. But uh, one of the things that stood out to me was um, uh, Tom Blanding's posted some checkpoint billboards. He asked for some posters uh, to, and then and very quickly turned around and um, gave us um, uh, some billboards uh, that point uh, folks in the right direction and add some narrative scenery to the tabletop. So uh, things like Imperial Guard posters saying, have you checked for mutation? And you know this way to processing and all that kind of stuff that just has a, a little bit of humor to the, almost those sort of um blood bowl style adverts but to a 40k tabletop yeah i've seen some stuff like that in the past it's brilliant i think there's um like a necromunda one i've seen that's like have you done your daily your, your daily burning of the heretic <laughs> stuff like that or a commissar saying like we want you for the guard you have no choice <laughs> Or something like that. There's yeah, some brilliant like 40k posters and propaganda out there, and yeah, the uh, the stuff that Tom's done. Um, we're building these uh, like billboards directing people to his checkpoint or his recruitment camp or whatever. <laughs> they look brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of thing that you know, once you've got your basic scenery, you can start adding character and flavour, not just to your armies and your stories, but your tabletop as well. And that's what I particularly liked about Tom's post. And Dan, anything you've spotted? Uh, yes, I did. Um, Curtis Stevenson's Freebooters were very nice. Uh, oh, right, that back in that. the middle of October. Um, <laughs> yeah, some uh, some rather nice stuff there. 
we've got a, a ba basically I don't know how much of the army was uh, yeah painted recently, but there's a pictures of the full army and then lots of cool little conversions, um, especially a, a little video of uh, a is it a burner bomber um, made out of uh, the the new Admech flyer with uh, helicopter blades that spin around. It's uh, yeah, uh, rather impressive. I don't even know what he uses it as, but it's impressive because, like you say, it's it's a fully motorized like helicopter for his orcs, isn't it? It's awesome. It's even got a, an LED in it that's lit up as well. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, and yeah, like they say, the whole army is great. Um, there's uh, a bunch of uh, the the buggies, um, some some other looted vehicles, looted uh, looted falcon, looted devilfish, um, a flying truck. Some sort of uh, looted flying pirate ship. It's freebooters, right? So yeah, uh, it's it's a, a very mad, colourful, awesome orky army. I have to say, one of my favourites is the the rebuilt scrap jet, where he, <laughs> he's taken the the mega track scrap jet buggy, and he's rebuilt out like full scale wings and. Um, like fuselage and everything else for it, so actually it's now a functioning DACA jet again, or equivalent, you know. <laughs> and I, I say I think, I think I've seen this particular conversion elsewhere in like the Twitter sphere and stuff before, because I'm convinced I've seen a work in progress version of it where he was building the wings and like every one of those panels is like recut and hand placed in order to build these out because I think he's used an airfix kit as the frame of the airplane, but he's done it up with literally rivet by rivet metal plate, armor plates on it. So it looks more like an orc kit. It doesn't look like an airfix kit. He's just stuck an orc on, Do you know what I mean? It, it, it looks like a proper games workshop orc model. Yeah. Uh, I, I have, while we've been talking, I've been trying to find him on Twitter because I'm pretty sure uh, I saw it there as well. Uh, and he's uh, at the little mech. Oh, awesome. It's that Curtis. I didn't realise it was little mech. <laughs> <laughs> I am somewhat familiar with him and his work as well, yes. Oh, that's great. Oh, well, there we go. I'm glad to have Curtis in the group. Small world problems of uh, multiple social media platforms. Yes, you cannot hide from us. No, we will find you. We will admire your work. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, you, and then, is there anything you've seen? Yeah, so th this was an interesting post because I always like it when these sort of ones come up in the group. This was actually um, Jared Dayton's Fred, so like a conversation that he started on creating custom worlds and settings for like your armies and your campaigns and stuff and what people prefer to do. And there was a, a good conversation. So it's definitely worth going, having a look and, you know, having a read of it, if not even contributing, uh, it's just there on the Facebook group, but it was all this sort of stuff where people were explaining their ideas that they have done in the past, be it like creating um, campaign maps or world maps or devising entire like planetary systems that they might use to set their games in. I know I, I, I sort of spoke up and mentioned that I like to think of every sort of like biome 
of a battlefield I can create with my own terrain is part of a particular planet that my forces regularly engage on. So I know, Dan, when we played our game um, the other month and we played using my sort of like Death World forest board, that isn't yep. just a forest world to me. In my mind, that is the planet of Goros, which is the local jungle world that Zagdreg is always accosting. <laughs> He's <laughs> always pillaging for, you know, um, new looted vehicles from whatever outposts the Imperium was managed to set up on it, or, you know, whatever pesky ad mech are there trying to claim STCs from downed satellites. <laughs> I, I don't just think of it as, oh, I'm playing on a death world. It's like every sort of game I play on my own board will be on Koros. And then... Not just any death world, it's my death world. Yeah, it's my death world. Uh, and although I haven't quite yet, say, created an idea of like my local tundra world or local hive world or whatever, I'm sure that once I have a terrain collection that feels like it's a cohesive part of another sort of environment, I'll probably end up either thinking that that's a certain continent on Goros or a major city, or it might be on another planet in the same system. And that's reasons why my forces might regularly be in these environments and battling people in these areas, you know, because it's just that sector of space that they're, well, living in, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I must admit, I've developed my background a different way. I, I think I, I posted on that thread and... Um, I have written up some of my Rainbow Warriors background on a blog and, and I shared that post. But I've, I've done it in a slightly different way. I've sort of developed the story about some of the characters and the characters have come out some of the games I've played. Um, so I remember playing uh, Declan at our club once. I think Declan's part of the Facebook group as well. And uh, I was playing against his Tyranids and it was the first time in 8th I'd take, use the Chapter Master stratagem. I'd never had a Chapter Master for my Rainbow Warriors before. Um, but he, he did quite a good solo stand against oncoming hordes of Termagants, as, as you can imagine in that kind of game. And um, and then I was I was chatting with him the day after just, by, just on Facebook Messenger about the game and we were reliving it. And I, I just started coming up with a name for the Chapter Master, which I'd not had the night before at the club. Uh, and some background for him, and all of a sudden, I've got my chapter master Archon CL, and within a couple of weeks, I'd built a model for him in Terminator armor uh, properly because I'd proxied him before, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And um, it just led from one thing to another. And and my my background is built up in something that's in a let's call it it's not very good, it's not very well written, but it's a, a um, <laughs> it's in in the style of a codex, shall we say. Or the kind of yeah. entry you might get on fandom, 40k fandom, yeah. uh, where it's broken down into you know some background and this bit about their armor and that bit about their you know vehicles or, or you know that kind of thing. Uh, and I built that in a very different way from what you describe. Well, I know that like in my mind, if I if I'm going to sort of think about creating any particular narrative for anything to do with 40k. I'll probably think, how could this fit into my wider personal law amongst my collections and armies and stuff than just how does this work in isolation? So, for example, I, I, I know I have plans at some point in the future to run another Only War campaign. So I'll be running you know, this RPG 
um, gaming session where you're playing as Imperial Guardsmen. And then in the back of my mind, I already think that rather than just saying Yorkadians or whatever regiment you are, I, I imagine that the player characters will be from like the Medusan 501st, which is like my guard regiment. They won't, they won't be literally representing like a squad that I know of in my collection, but I could just imagine obviously that regiment is going to be so much larger than any army I could ever physically collect for 40k. So it might be that those player characters are from my regiment, just some other part of it. And it might be that if at some point in the campaign they find themselves on a jungle world, they might just happen to find themselves on Goros. Mm-hmm. And, they, and if they happen to come across some orcs while they're on Goros, chances are they'll probably be Death Skulls. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to bump into Zagdrag Ironhide himself. <laughs> but, like, well, I they could. Like they, they could if I, if I really wanted. Um, <laughs> but, like, I, I certainly think it'd just be nice in my head to think, well, rather than just having these Cadians fighting these, you know, goths on some desert world, I was like, well, why don't I have the 501st battling some death scores on a, a jungle world? It's like, I could imagine that happening in my extended law. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting seeing the way people have posted on that, to see the different ways that they, they come up with stuff. And it's, it's clearly, yeah, if you've not uh, you've not seen that and you're listening to us, go back and, and read that, because it, it's quite useful to, the, to understand how other people do it and see if you can bring any ideas into your own gaming, especially during lockdown two, where it's all we've got to think about. <laughs> yeah. We can all have have uh, big star systems with uh, full background and everything. Well, we'll have a whole uh, subsector fully yeah. fleshed out each by the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was it was a really good conversation. So there's uh, there was loads of ideas that people had. So yeah, thank you, Jared, for that. And uh, I'd love to see some more posts like that in the group because it really was it was a good conversation starter sort of thing. You know, it was just really cool ideas that people had. So yeah. yeah. Definitely go check it out if you haven't done already. I think there was possibly a certain game that I saw in the group that was uh, being played out between a very large horde of um, feral right. and some Imperial Guard. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. Uh, I did play a game of 40k. Uh, well, I played a, a few games of 40k in the past month or so. Uh, but that one in particular stands out because it was a narrative game. And interestingly, a narrative game that wasn't Crusade, uh, which is a, a rarity now, I think. But uh, it was uh, we played the the Blitz mission from the Eighth Edition rulebook, uh, more or less. So it's uh, one side trying to get into the deployment zone of the other side, uh, and the attacker has recycling troops. Uh, and to make it interesting. I was playing with a full orc horde of, uh, so it was two thousand points ish, and I had one hundred and sixty boys plus characters. I, I have to say, I was really surprised by that. So obviously, as you can guess, we've, we've transitioned into our games played now, and this is the <laughs> the, the main sort of game that you played in the last say month or so, yep. Dan. And yeah, that, Dan, that seemed telling you off for not sticking to the format, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that was me just making it clear to the listeners because I was quite happy for us to jump straight into games played. Um, so, yeah, 
I saw the pictures of this in the Facebook group and the board you had set up showing like, you know, the deployments of the armies and obviously you were this like yep. massed orc horde of orc boys and then also yeah. quite a significant guard army on the opposite side of yep. the table. All, uh, all infantry as well, pretty much. Yeah, and I was like, oh, wow, cool. Dan's, you know, choosing to have, like, a really big, large-scale, almost, like, apocalypse-style game. Yeah, it's 2,000 points. Well. And then, yeah, got to the end of the description, <laughs> and you were like, oh, we're playing 2,000 points. Like, wow, those are two big armies for 2,000 points. Yes. Yeah, it turns out you can fit a lot in if you just take infantry. <laughs> just orc boys and guardsmen. There's a yep. lot of orc boys and guardsmen. Yeah. So, yeah, that was fun. Uh, it was, yeah, an experience. Uh, it wasn't the most tactical of games. My opponent described it as attritional, <laughs> which I think is fair. Uh, but it was it, it was a bit of a yeah, it was a bit of a slog. But it was also a great kind of experience, um, and it looked good for pictures, uh, and we had a laugh doing it. So you know, that's what you want from a game, forty k, right? Was it one of those games where you felt you bought, should have bought a longer dustpan and bush to help you move the troops off the table? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I did see there were movement trays being deployed. Yeah, I, I have been using the uh, Apocalypse movement trays, which are quite nice. Yeah. Um, although I, I did find the moving the boys wasn't the problem. It was rolling all the dice. Was... <laughs> so what were you actually taking as a force then? So I uh, technically it was two battalions of uh, feral orcs from the Saga of the Beast uh, Psychic Awakening. So the super snake with the bites. So, yeah, so they, so they could all uh, advance 3d6, pick the highest, and they could all have a six-inch pile-in. So they were like proper swarming over whenever they, they got there. And it was, yeah, six units of boys, uh, 230 and 425. Uh, and then two war bosses, two weird boys, two big mechs with force fields, and uh, a pain boy and a knob with war banner. And that's it. <laughs> so it really was the orc horde. It's just, yep. here's boys accompanied by some custom force fields and pain boys to make sure they get there, and some war bosses to make sure they charge. Yep. Yeah, and up um, against them were... A lot of guardsmen with two big blobs of 30 col uh, conscripts and assorted artillery. They had a, a whole load of mortar barrage uh, things and, and the, the 412 thud guns. Uh, all, yeah, and, and Creed shouting orders. So it's fun. How did it go? Uh, it, well, in the end, the guard managed to hold off the Orc Horde uh, and were victorious. Um, although we did kill most of them. <laughs> they, they, lived, they held the line long enough for the one yeah. VIP to escape or something. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was basically Creed and his mortars hanging at the back that was left alive. Right, well, I think at... Ooh, what are we on? <laughs> Just over an hour in, we might as well move on to our main topic for tonight. Yeah, why not? Because it Absolutely. sounds like we've been up to a lot in the past month, and it's been great to hear about it all, but it's probably time to actually talk about Beyond the Veil. Yeah. 
you kids listen up now, and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he catches any of you without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative Wah Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Right. Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. Right you kids, get your loot in the truck and zog off to the ping It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them RedTube sent you. You might get some extra special. And we're back, guys. And we are possibly now beyond the veil. Ooh. So it's not turned into a Victorian seance, has it? Quite possibly. We just need to make sure we don't accidentally summon um, murderous metallic skeleton robots. That's always a daydream for you, King. Yeah, that could be a problem. Um, so yeah, so uh, tonight's main topic is basically the third instalment in our recent mini-series on Crusade, because it's just that good, and <laughs> there's just that much stuff in it. Um, so this is the first official sort of like expansion to the core Crusade rules, um, which I think technically on release date predated even the new codexes, didn't it? So even before yeah, yeah. the codex-specific editions came into uh, Crusade. Yeah. I have to say, I've been quite surprised by it, like in a few different ways, because I don't quite know what I was expecting, but it certainly wasn't exactly what I was expecting, but it's very good. <laughs> um, so for those that are not aware, like the first thing I want to say about it is I was expecting a sort of codex style publication, something similar to like the Vigilus series books. And actually when it showed up, because I ordered it online, so I hadn't held it in my hand in the shop before I bought it, turns out it's a, uh, it's a spiral bound, sort of like A5, sort of like yeah. sized booklet slash mission pack and it's it is really good quality you know that, that's not to take away from it at all i was just a little surprised when i opened the um the box it came in and i was like oh i was expecting an a4 like hardback bound book and it's not oh. <laughs> it, it's actually a lot handier than that it's really something you can just pop in your bag and sort of take with you so um i was pleasantly surprised yeah, I, I agree. It wasn't entirely what I was expecting, but it, it's nicely bound and covered. It's got a bookmark, a little uh, elastic bookmark in there, which is quite good uh, to hold things down and make it a bit more useful. I'm a bit worried about the long-term viability of the spine, as you always are with any spiral-bound book. But... I had wondered this as well a little bit. I think it's probably going to generally be okay. Um, I think if this was like a codex publication you were flicking through all the time, every time you played with Army, it might get a bit more wear and tear, but obviously since this is a sort of mission pack for a particular form of gameplay, 
I think it'll probably have the longevity it needs. Yeah. Although that said, one little trick that I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be very carefully cutting out the contents page by the very <laughs> sheet because throughout this whole, say, I'm going to refer to it as a book probably moving forward as throughout this, but it's weird referring to it as a book because it's because it's a spiral bound publication. But yes, um, throughout the book, um, there's lots of this nice new artwork for things, but they're usually used as like dividing pages between sections. So while it'll have artwork on one side, the next page will be the first mission from the missions section or something similar. But the very first page, it's got this lovely artwork on one side, like the Necron hordes like merging from awakening in their tombs. And on the other side, it's just a contents page. So I'm probably going to cut that out and frame it. And then there you go. I have a, a bonus piece of framed 40k artwork. Yeah. Um, so that's lovely. And then the second surprise that I got when I actually had a quick flick through it was that this is in fact a mini rulebook, which I did not expect. And I don't think was particularly like well advertised. I didn't know that I was going to be getting no, a copy I... of rules when I bought this. No, it took me by surprise as well. And I've, I've not heard anybody else uh, talking about the book uh, who've mentioned the fact he's got a mini rule book in the back, which was rather surprising. The other thing that I, I bought at the same time was the, the Tactical Deployment Mission Pack one, um, which is more for the... Um, it's called Not Narrative Wargaming. Uh, match play. Match play, thank you. I, I do it so little, I forget the terminology. Um, <laughs> but that's the same. It's got the same mini rule book in the back. <laughs> So it's clearly something they're doing on purpose and is something they intend to do, presumably to help us, because I've always liked the, the A5 rule books uh, in the last few editions that they brought out, and I'm really happy with this. But... Yeah, I think they've always been very um, popular and coveted publications, but they've only ever come as part of other box sets or releases or something. They've never just sold them off the shelf. And although yeah. technically this isn't a mini rule book that you're buying. You're buying a mission pack or a, like you say, a tactical terrain kit or whatever. It's got a mini rule book in it and it's about one third of the That's book. Right. It's like, it's about 120 pages. So there's a good, like what, 40 pages of this. They're actually just yeah. the rules. And it's not the, it's not the just rules. the basic rules. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not just the stuff that's available for free as the PDF or on the app. It is, the basic rules and the advanced rules. Oh. Um, so it is everything it's, to it's a play ninth yeah. edition. Yeah. So I have to say that was a, a really pleasant surprise to discover that actually, oh, I could just take this in my bag to games instead of taking um, the full rule book. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So when you consider you're also getting a rule book in it, it's a really good value before you even get into what it's for. I probably shouldn't admit this, but one of the things that attracted me to the fact it got the rules in the back, I was just flicking through it when I first got to it, and there's a nice piece of art just right at the very end of the narrative section, at the start of the basic rules section, um, of some uh, Storm Reaper Space Marines, white Space Marines with the axes and the lightning flashes on their shoulder pads fighting some Black Legion, and the Black Legion got me. I saw it was the Storm Reapers, because I've recently painted one for my Death Watch. Um... And I thought, oh, I've not seen Storm Reaper's army before. I'm looking at the art, and suddenly I realised the next play is proper rules. What? How far does this go? Oh, it's all the rest of the book. 
<laughs> so it was a cool art that attracted me, and I uh, I then then realised the rules are there. So that probably tells you quite a lot about the way I play 40k. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sort of the same. I have to admit, I saw that exact same artwork, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I haven't seen them. Um... I haven't seen this chapter in ages, like being represented. I mean, I couldn't for the life of me remember the name, but I'd recognized the paint scheme and the chapter badge. I was like, I haven't seen them in represented in like artwork in forever. What was it again? The Storm what, sorry? Storm Reapers. Storm Reapers. Yep. Yeah, I thought that was really cool when I saw those. Um, so yeah, I mean, the other thing that surprised me considering that this was a crusade publication and therefore affiliated primarily with narrative play i will say it's sold as a mission pack that's very much what it is in 120 pages there's only actually three a5 pages of law there's not very much in the way of like back uh, background law narrative of the universe as a whole there's plenty of stuff in here about you know like the missions that you're playing and the relics you'll get and stuff like that but if you're just looking for the sort of um background there's actually not a ton of it in here so i think it's something that you get for gameplay purposes not just to have a read of like the vigilus books i thought were brilliant because they had tons of lore in them you you could get lots of enjoyment out of those from both narrative and gameplay this is very much a gameplay publication. I think you're underselling the law. There are three pages of law and a map uh, on one Ooh, page. And so, Sorry, yes. All pages, so I don't the map as well. <laughs> I do apologise. It is now officially a narrative publication because of a map. <laughs> I think I think it's fair to say though that the whole point of Crusade is to forge your own narrative. True. So, uh, yes. To yes. a certain extent, it does it does kind of make sense. No, the reason I call that the map particularly is just connecting back to what we were talking about earlier about the Facebook group and the developing your own uh, stories and that kind of thing that we were talking about there. Um, a map is one of those ways that people people drive their stories forward. Uh, so having something like this in Warzone Pariah that says, this is the rough extent of the Warzone, this is where you can play, these are some idea of world names and, and what's going on there, um, is, is one of those great ways to get into your own narrative. That's a good point. Is, uh, is, is a thing, if there's a map, you can look at it and pick a name that isn't mentioned and go, that's my world now. And then start daydreaming from there. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, to be honest, it does sort of help lay out exactly what the pariah nexus is and what the nature of the veil is. So, like, a bit, uh, basically, the, the sort of quick rundown of it here is that the Pariah Nexus is this region of space that the Necrons have more or less annexed <laughs> from basically everyone else in the galaxy. Um, and in a time where the Citrix Maledictum is causing just constant like ravaging warp storms all across the Imperium and the wider galaxy, the Pariah Nexus is an area of space that is suspiciously quiet and devoid of warp activity. Like these warp storms that are ravaging everywhere else just do not seem to be affecting this area of space. And then equally, like there's tends there's just been like no communication or contact from like anyone that was in that area of space. So all the Imperial forces and Imperial worlds that are there have also like gone silent. And that's why 
you know, government has dispatched elements of the Indomitus uh, Crusade to sort of investigate it. And then the veil in the name is basically the border of this region of space. And to cross the veil is to enter the prior nexus. So it is very literal, the title. Yes, I mean, it, it actually describes it as um, any of like the warp-sensitive um, humans a bit, sort of do perceive a an ephemeral sort of veil uh, on this border of space, and they they are very aware that they can't see through it. That um, when they pass through it, it suddenly they feel themselves distanced from the from the warp like their connection to it is it's not cut off completely so it's not like they suddenly can't use their powers but it's like they're really struggling to do so like it's been sort of smothered or suppressed and it has this just really oppressive um sort of like dulling and deadening effect on every living thing so everything just is very lackluster there's a loss of energy loss of motivation it's just it's referred to as the stilling um or the individuals become the silenced or whatever or the stilled and it's basically it's just this like weight on the soul um that just saps your will to live so it's yeah it's bad it's bad, yeah. It's kind of like it, it's kind of how like pariahs are described as having this unsettling and unnerving or deadening effect on um, psychers or people around them. Yeah, um, it's that, but on like an incredibly grand scale. So it's like across a region of space, not just localized to a, you know in the same room as an individual. Um, so it, it's just a real like gnawing of the soul um, and the effect it has on the warp is that the warp is really deadened and stilled and, and it sort of it becomes clear that this has all been masterminded by the Silent King and the various Necron dynasties in this region of space and it's through arcane Necron technology that they've been creating this effect Um and the purpose of it is to kind of de- defeat the warp, as it were. Like, the warp is in turmoil and um, has this literally chaotic influence on the universe and the beings in it because where there is life, chaos thrives. So if they basically deaden life then they're deadening the reflection of that in the warp and basically weakening it. So they're not quite going out and exterminating all living things, but they're basically taking away that spark of life from things. They're not quite going out and exterminating all living things yet. Yet. <laughs> they de- they're definitely they're taking, taking control. Yeah. Yes, and actually one of the main features of the battlefields and the worlds, especially the imperial ones in the region, is that there are cities and um, populations that seem to have just vanished. Like um, cities and hives have been abandoned. 
and it's not clear whether or not in some cases it's because the inhabitants have fled um, the prior nexus or if it's because for more sinister reasons they've been you know whisked away abducted or whatever you know um, so it's very much got like a ghost town kind of like vibe to the whole thing yeah, that ghost town Marie Celeste thing that starts feeding through uh, as we'll start looking at the agendas and the, the battle traits and things like that uh, and how it plays out. That really is what drives the, the narrative uh, in the narrative campaign, right? Yes, I mean, like one of the main, like the, the, the two main themes really, I would say, when it comes to sort of gameplay is um, this one, this essence of investigation like trying to work out what's going on because obviously from the imperial perspective they've just shown up in this area of space and everything seems to have just like got up and left or just been abandoned and gone silent and it's not clear why at first you know it's only upon investigation that the menace of the necrons becomes the clear origin of it all Um, and then the second is this real sort of like struggling against inertia almost this real difficulty to bring cohesion together as a fighting force because everyone's struggling and fighting with this oppressing of their soul and obviously whereas a space marine might be more mentally prepared to to battle it or deal with it that doesn't mean all the, the, the serfs and stuff and all the humans that actually just make these battle barges work or, you know, are the workhorses of the Imperial Army or whatever, you know, just getting the, the juggernaut that is the Imperium moving. Yeah. They're all heavily affected by it, you know, so there's actually a real, like, challenge of logistics to it all and it comes through in how a lot of your army reaches the battlefield or is deployed or you know, suffered, suffering from delays and other stuff. Yeah. Well, it's really good. It all ties through together. Yeah, it's really good. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of roughly what the prior nexus is, this almost sort of like Necron home turf area of space where they'll be having none of that warp shenanigans <laughs> and they'll be having none of that living life with purpose and joy. None of that. Stop having fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, to that end, what the Through the Veil, sorry, Through the Veil, Beyond the Veil, actually brings to Crusade. So, there's a range of new things that it adds to your games of Crusade. So, first of all, there are seven new agendas which you can select when you're you know, picking your like secondary objectives, as it were, for Crusade games. Now, three of these are universal, and four of them are tied to this new investigation system that is unique to games based in the prior Nexus. So while all of them grant experience to the units that achieve those agendas, four of them also provide you with one or more investigation points so obviously those are only going to be relevant if you're playing like prior Nexus games. I mean, there's no reason why in theory you couldn't play one or two prior Nexus games, earn some investigation points, and then play some games that are not prior Nexus 
and come back to doing some Nexus games later. Mm-hmm. You still keep those investigation points. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't sound like a very nice place to stick around, so quite happy to uh, yeah, <laughs> do, a, do a bit of crusading there, then go crusade somewhere else for a bit to, uh, to you know... Oh, yeah, like this is definitely... elsewhere. This is definitely a, a challenge for both forces involved, which I will say from the outset, a lot of the sort of new rules for things like the um, negative effects of battling in the Nexus, they don't expressly say that Necrons are immune to them. But I think there's a decision to be made by players there, whether or not if you're playing and one of you is using a Necron force, maybe you say that they're immune to the effects of the the battlefield or whatever because it's it's their own it's their own influences that are doing it unless it's going to create a really one-sided experience to the game and you want to go for that more narrative spin maybe have it so that just the imperial or other racial forces are struggling while the necrons are just kind of having a nice time <laughs> yeah or i mean you could entirely justify it that they are affected because we know the necrons are not uh, the fastest at waking up or getting coordinated while they're still waking up if they're not on full on their you know uh full on their battle charge they they may be just struggling to get their forces together to get their the necrons in the right place to get them coordinated as they all teleport together you know very true yes like i'm sure you could create other explanations for why they're suffering similar ill effects if not narratively the exact same thing but functionally the same effect yeah that's true um so yeah so just to give you like some examples of these new agendas so for example uh, ambush is one of these ones that could just be applied universally to sort of any crusade games moving forward so you keep an ambush tally for each reinforcement and strategic reserve unit from your army Add one to a unit's ambush tally each time it destroys an enemy unit, adding an additional one if it destroys an enemy unit during the turn in which it was set up as reinforcements or strategic reserves. Each unit from your army that has two more marks on its ambush tally gains one experience. Uh, the unit from your army that has the highest ambush tally gains one additional experience point. So, whilst not expressly tied to prior Nexus games, it's particularly relevant because, as you'll learn shortly, basically every game or mission you play kind of forces elements of your army into reinforcements or strategic reserve. So you're probably going to have units in these locations. Yeah. So it's you know all these things as we go through they do connect together quite well uh, and help you tell that now. So that's one of the things I was particularly impressed by. Yeah, there's a lot of like interlinking systems here that work really well, but there's no reason why you couldn't just use that as a general um, agenda for Crusade. Like I imagine Gene Steeler cult players would love yeah, this. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, any Chaos players that um, plan, actually not as bad as I was going to say, unit, uh, that summon units of demons, but <laughs> the Crusade. Yeah, they don't count. Really, yeah, say they don't count. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I'm sure there's plenty of examples like... Um, Tyranids with a lot of burrowing units and so on. Yeah. Or know. Craftworld, if you're Eldar, Craftworld forces moving around the webway and um, ambushing people in that kind of way, that could be uh, another place you could use that kind of... Or, or just Space Marines with drop pods. Space yeah. Marines with drop pods. I'm painting in sectors right now. So. Yeah. But then you've also got some ones that are very particularly tied to the... Um, 
investigation system. So, for example, under Warpcraft, you've got the Through the Stillness agenda. So this is where you you keep a Through the Stillness tally for each Psyker unit from your army. Each time a unit successfully completes the Through the Stillness psychic action, add one to that unit's Through the Stillness tally. <laughs> Can you tell they're trying to get through the stillness? Yeah. If you selected this agenda, the Psyker units in your army can attempt the following psychic action. Through the stillness. Psychic action, yeah. warp charge of six. One Psyker unit from your army can attempt to perform this action during your psychic phase. If it is within six inches of a battlefield edge that has not been pierced by your army. <laughs> if the psychic action is successfully completed, that battlefield edge is said to have been pierced by your army. Each unit from your army gains a number of experience points equal to the marks on their through the stillness tally. At the end of the battle, if, it, if three or more battlefield edges have been pierced by your army, gain one investigation point. So, right. Yeah, the abbreviated version of that means that your psychers are trying to navigate where to go next after this battle. So they're trying to investigate all the edges of the battlefield and sort of peer beyond to work out where they need to be taking their forces next. Well, to express it another way, the psychers from your force are standing there doing weird psycho stuff instead of joining in the battle while everybody else fights. Oh, I'm sure they'll be fighting things at the same time, <laughs> or at least trying to fend things off while they try to you know, glean some... Um... Well, if, if it's a psychic action, that's got to happen in the psychic phase, right? Mm -hmm. So they can't then cast... Emperor's might or... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, true, yeah, but they could... If it's successfully appeared about it. Um, they are, however, then able to shoot and fight things. In this the rest is true. Of the so they they just, yes. They're just bending their psychic talents to scrying the way forward. Rather right. than... El, um, El Jad can still shoot his last pistol while doing his weird, weird uh. psychic stuff. <laughs> um, but the key from that is that not only do your, you know, these units sort of gain experience, so your psychers will get experience for helping, you know, plot the way through the nexus, but at the same time, you will gain an investigation point. And various agendas here, you gain an investigation point. So there's ones like um, Uncover the Answers, where you're investigating objective markers. Um, Psychic Beacon, which is one where you're basically trying to... Um, send a psychic message to your other forces. I think you have to be sort of near the centre of the battlefield. Yeah, you can you can do the action if you're in six inches of the centre of the battlefield. So by dominating the centre of the board and then trying to communicate with through psychic action to gain investigation points. Which interestingly some of those some of those agendas also, you know, if you get those tallies and you add them up, they get extra experience points for every unit. Uh, Yes, a lot of these are actually tied more to um, spreading experience across your force as a whole than the individual unit responsible for the completion of the agenda, which is um, a nice option. That's quite cool. You can you can tailor it for if you've got like one unit you really want to level up, or if you haven't, and if you've just got a, you know, a range of units that are a bit... Yeah, close or or whatever you can take an agenda to help everyone or just take one to really focus on one unit 
Yeah, so for example, the new make contact agenda basically says any infantry unit can perform this action. When a unit does, they get a, a mark on this tally and at the end of the battle. Every unit that has a mark on this tally gains an experience equal to its marks. So, you know, any unit has the option and ability to add towards this tally and any unit that contributes gets the experience. You're not just designating a unit who, if they succeed, get experience. So that's cool. Um, so we'll actually just quickly explain what the investigation system is then, um, which, to be honest, is quite simple. It's basically requisition points uh, reskinned, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so basically, as you complete your agendas and your objectives, because like some of the missions will also reward you with investigation points, um, and you accumulate them, and then you can spend them on a few options. Um, interestingly, though, you're not able to save any once you spend. Basically, you save up, and then you cash in like all your investigation points at that point, at that point in time. Okay. So there are um, there's one, two, three. The, the six potential things you can spend your investigation points on, which are appropriately priced. Um, one plus uh, investigation point, two, three, four, seven, and nine, respectively. So you can see there's like a, a scale of reward here. Yeah. Um, so the first is a study artifact, which basically gives you a bonus to these relic powers that exist in the Crusade relics in this book. So we'll get to those shortly, but basically makes you more likely to get the upgraded version of that Crusade relic. Which I'm sure you'll be interested in, Dan. Yep. Want to get me some sweet Necron tech? There's an interesting one here. Uh, mental conditioning. For two investigation points, you can basically select a unit of a battle scar and remove the battle scar. Which is really nice because it gives you a way of healing or repairing your units without spending the requisition points you would normally yeah. use to do so. So I could repair my scrapjet without having to expend all my requisition points. That's got you quite excited, hasn't it? <laughs> well, I like the fact it's called mental conditioning. If he thinks his scrap jet is fixed well enough. <laughs> what are you going to do with that thing that stuck to his nose cone after ramming Dan? It's probably a sharp piece of uh, jagged metal, so I'm sure now it's just a, uh, a feature. <laughs> feature. <laughs> I feel like the mental conditioning there is basically just telling him to stop procrastinating and actually do it. <laughs> the Nike option. Just do it. Yeah, just, just kick, fix it. Come on. Kick up the backside from the mech boss. Um, but you can also spend um, investigation points on increasing your supply limit. You can just outright gain a requisition point for four investigation points. Um, you can select a character from your order of battle and just give them a, a Nexus relic for seven mm -hmm. investigation points. Or um, for nine investigation points, you can give a unit a battle honor, which is funny because that means you could exceed the experience limit. Hmm. You could technically have a unit that's got to max level and still use investigation points uh, for strength through adversity to give them more battle honors. Although, yeah, you know, I don't know anyone that would have played enough Crusade games at this point. For and this, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there is um in the in the core rules. There's a there's a limit of how many battle honors a a, a unit can acquire, and it is more than you would get for max rank, um, like which is four or five or whatever. Like the limit is, I think, one more than the maximum you get if you leveled up all the way. So they've definitely um yeah intended for them to be obtainable through other means. Yeah. So basically, yeah, like the investigation points are all ways of exchanging for rewards you would typically get out of your requisition. So it's like a second currency, but it means you can earn that alongside your requisition to either get bonuses to healing units, gaining upgrades, increasing your supply limit, etc., etc. So it's basically a, a reward for playing multiple games of Pariah Nexus. Eventually you'll get some extra nice little bonuses to your order of battle. Um, and then, speaking of which, there are a selection of new battle traits and battle scars. So just some quick examples. Um, there are five new universal battle traits and one that is kind of tied specifically to the theaters of war used in the prior nexus. So um, like the example we've got here, so it's like they've done in the main crusade rules where there's like four tables, um, one for vehicles, one for monsters, one for characters and one for other units. Right. So as with other battle traits, you can choose to either roll on the relevant table or you can just pick a suitable result. And again, most of these can be universally applied. So you could just choose if, if like if you and your play group or whatever were comfortable doing so, you could just pick battle traits from here in your normal games if you wanted. Um, so for example, um, the new Crusaders trait for basically infantry units, you can make advance and charge rolls. When you make advance and charge rolls for this unit, you can re-roll dice results of one and two, and you can re-roll morale tests for this unit. That's uh, could be handy on some, some units. Um, you've got a battle trait for monsters called Throws of Rage. When making an attack with a model in this unit, an unmodified hit of a six causes an additional hit. So nice. very angry monsters. I rather like the vehicle one, the the shield of logic. You uh, uh, you don't accept that all this psychic power stuff can affect you. So if you take your wound in the psychic phase and all the d6 on a five, you ignore that wound. <laughs> I don't believe it can hurt me. I'm a machine. It won't hurt me. Uh, this machine spirit finds uh, comfort in the cold reality of logic. <laughs> None of this warp magic shenanigans. <laughs> um, and then I quite like the emboldening aura battle trait for characters where this unit gains the following ability emboldening aura whilst a friendly unit is within 6 inch of this character models in that unit can use this character's leadership characteristic instead of their own like I think there's a few armies out there where suddenly having a leadership bubble could be quite helpful yeah yeah definitely It's a, I mean leadership is an oft kind of forgotten aspect of the game but it's uh you know it definitely comes in handy more than you think i think it's becoming more relevant in ninth edition with the new way that um battle and uh, sorry combat attrition works and there's some stuff in the nexus that impacts your leadership so it is coming up um but then 
the really interesting stuff, I think, is the new Battle Scars. And there's a bit of a theme running through both this and what looks like the new Codex editions to Crusade, where some Battle Scars, they have, like, a primarily negative effect, but they also have a sort of positive side effect because of it. Yeah. So, for example, there's a new Battle Scar for Psyker units called Suffocating Madness. As if their mind is enclosed in a smothering veil, this psyker struggles to employ their empiric powers. A feverish insanity takes root, and in despair and increasing agitation, they lash out with undisguised fury. So basically, psychers who have spent their whole lives being used to being connected to the warp and just having this you know, innate ability to use their psychic powers any day and every day and it's just what they're so reliant upon when suddenly they're disconnected from that and they can't just do things so naturally as they used to before it kind of just really unnerves them and like they just almost don't know what to do or even how to manage anymore without such ease of access to their powers so it's a it's a bit like when my internet goes down it's exactly like when your internet goes down. Suddenly, when the when the internet's down, you don't know what to do with yourself. How are you going to do anything? You can't do anything about the internet. In this case, if they are being driven mad by, suffocate, by suffocating madness, each time a psychic test is taken for this unit, roll one additional d6 and discard the highest result. So obviously, that makes your psychic tests a lot harder to pass. Yeah. However, the second half of this battle scar is that each time a melee attack is made by a model in this unit, you can re-roll the wound roll. Ooh. Because okay. they're just they're just going, you know, sort of like a little bit berserk because they just don't know how to do anything anymore without access to the warp. So it's driving them mad and that madness is coming out in just ferocity i mean um i think that depends on who your psycho is i mean if you've got a space marine librarian uh, that's okay i am not really necessarily wanting to put my imperial guard psychos into close combat <laughs> yeah i mean i could imagine like you say a primera psycho who suddenly oh no he can't cast smite well he's just gonna rip you apart with his force weapon instead that he's re-rolling wounds with all of a sudden yeah, but I, I'd rather have the Emperor's gaze, right? <laughs> like, sounds, sounds like it would be quite good for, like, a demon prince. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, for example, the character unit battle scar here, it's uh, called self-preservation, and basically it represents the fact that character models in 8th and ninth edition traditionally are meant to be spending a lot of their time commanding their forces and leading their men, hence the aura abilities and the improvements they make to the, the warriors around them. And the self-preservation battle scar basically means that um, they're too worried about their own life and their own um, survival, that they're not spending that time and effort coordinating the people around them. But it also means that they're paying more attention to their own immediate problems. So... Yeah. You subtract one from the leadership characteristic of this model, and you subtract two inches from the range of any aura abilities this model has. But 
you can re-roll hit rolls for attacks made by this model. Because yeah. mm. basically, they're not leading by example. They're just worrying about their own immediate threats. So they're paying more attention to the thing they're fighting in front of them than they are to leading the men around them. And, and the monster battle scar is very similar. I was looking at that because the, the example of the uh, the demon prince that you gave uh, yes. If you, you have the attacks characteristic of the model in this unit, but each model uh, in this unit makes the attack, you can re-roll the hit roll. So, so there are some monsters that are a little bit more <laughs> shooty focused anyway, in which case that's almost not a scar, is it? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're not being so wild and ferocious as they normally are. They're being kind of more calculated and precise in their actions, which for a large, lumbering monster, like you say, that's equating to less attacks, but those attacks are more accurate. So, is this a battle scar? Is it not? You know, your Screamer Killer Carnifix is probably going to, you know not enjoy having his attacks halved, but he's going to get to re-roll everything. But then again, like you say, your Tyrannifix or whatever that's sporting a rupture cannon, what does he care if he's on half attacks? <laughs> yeah, He's mostly blasting things anyway, and if he is attacking, he's going to make sure those attacks, you know, really hit. Um, which is the one that uh, I really like. Oh yeah, so for like infantry units, um, unnerved. I love this. It's basically a super paranoid unit. Like you know, they're just on edge about anything possibly jumping out of the shadows and attacking them at any moment. So you got each time a morale test is taken for this unit, change all dice rolls to a six. So <laughs> you're always going to be rolling the worst possible check against your morale, uh, but. At the end of any phase in which any enemy units are set up on the battlefield as reinforcements within 12 inches of this unit, this unit can make a normal move of up to D6 inches as if it were your movement phase. So <laughs> they're really nice. on edge and really scared about anything popping out of the shadows. But that, means that, yeah, <laughs> but it means that one time that something does pop out of the shadows, they were already like... Wait, uh, ready for it, you know, because they're already expecting it anyway. So they're gonna, they're gonna head off and uh, get out of there as quick as they can. Yeah, that's nice. So yeah, you're all six as on morales, but if that you know deep striking unit of um, death company, well, yeah, death company suddenly appear in twelve inches, you're gonna back off, and uh, they're gonna have a lot harder charge distance to make. Or those, uh, you know, Chaos Demons appearing out of the warp. Suddenly, they're not just going to be nine inches away. You might be 11, 12 or more inches away, and suddenly you're not making that charge because it's jumping. Yeah, good luck with that. Backed off. So, yeah, there's some, some really cool sort of side effects to these battle scars where you, you might be tempted to actually keep them and um, deal with, you know, the bad as well as the good that you get out of it um and then sort of finally the last addition is the new relics of the nexus which basically it's what one two three four five new crusade relics so the usual thing where if uh, a mission or a 
investigation point reward instruction you can give a crusade relic to a character if they were part of that battle or whatever in a nexus game they've got all sorts of various effects but the unusual thing about the nexus relics is they have like two states of activity like um locked and unlocked where basically you get like an upgraded or enhanced version of the relic because you've managed to work out its true potential you've managed to investigate it enough and understand how to use it that actually now you get the full effectiveness of that relic so for example um the solar shift core uh, you can re-roll advanced rolls and charge rolls made for the bearer's unit. Cool. But if you've got the unlocked version, in addition, when the bearer charges, targets of that charge cannot fire overwatch or set to defend. So there's like an, an extra enhanced version of it. Um, there's, a, there's a relic that gives you like a six-up shrug against mortal wounds. Um, and the unlocked version is you get a five up shrug instead. Um, now, how you unlock these relics is at the end of each battle, you can roll 1d6 for each relic of the Nexus a character model has. On a six, the full power of that relic is discovered, and the bearer can use the additional unlocked ability of the relic. However, this is the one and only racial reference to necrons that actually comes up in here which is if the bearer is a necrons model add four to this role <laughs> basically on the two plus your necron character will unlock surprise surprise this necron artifact but this is also where you can spend those investigation points so you can get a bonus to that role right yes yeah. so um one of the investigation options is study artifact so when you make this role you can spend um as many investigation points as you would like to add that much to the role so if you added four investigation points to study the artifact you would unlock it in a two plus as an imperial character or eldar character or whatever i quite like that because it's um well i mean i like it because it's it's cool that necrons get a bonus on it but it's it's also cool that you can uh it it's a good way you can like if you pick up one of those relics and you're not playing a lot of pariah nexus stuff you can use one of those investigation points to just give yourself a little buff to it if you think like you're not gonna not gonna encounter many more yes that's true actually if you come away with that from that game with a relic and an investigation point and you don't think yeah. you're gonna be playing a prior game for a while you might as well use it and hope on a five plus you get the better version of the relic from every game onwards, then you still get to roll it on a six. You get yeah. unlocked anyway. So it's a nice way of like using them up. If uh, <laughs> if you have a load of them that you're not gonna not gonna be able to use. There's some really cool stuff like um, the, the this one is an antiquity relic, but it's the rod of lambent energy. It's basically a uh, staff of light for Necrons, but like a really good version and one that any obviously any army could have. Nice. So it's um, it's a melee weapon, but it's a uh, plus two strength, AP minus one, two damage. But the unlocked version is is instead plus three strength, 
minus one AP damage free. Just having like I mean, imagine like um, an Imperial Guard company commander who suddenly has a, a plus three strength damage free weapon. <laughs> like he's actually going to be pretty lethal. <laughs> yeah, don't tell Katie and Dan that. <laughs> <laughs> Because in today's company, Captain really would be taking on some flesh terrors. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's something to give to one of those characters that's not really a fighty character, but suddenly they are. Cool. Uh, so then there is... So that's all sort of like um, additions to your order of battle and the way you get you know new stuff to your army over time. Um, and then there are the theatres of war, uh, strategic setbacks, setbacks and afflictions. So basically, the things that affect you for actually battling in the prior nexus. Um, so unless stated otherwise by the mission you're playing, it's assumed that all um, prior nexus games will use one of these strategic setbacks. You can either um, roll randomly on the D3 table or depending on the game and you and your opponent, you can just pick which one you feel might be the most appropriate. But basically, they all affect ways in which your army shows up to the game. So if you want to bear these in mind when we talk about some of the missions shortly, that this will be an effect more than likely. Where one of them is um, disorientated approach. Navigating their way through the unsettling calm, the formation of your forces have become fractured as they struggle to maintain discipline and cohesion. Each player divides their deployment zone as evenly as possible into three equal sections and numbers them one to three. When setting up a unit from their army on the battlefield, each player must roll 1d3 to determine which section of their deployment zone that unit must be set up wholly within. If a player runs out of room to set up their unit wholly within that section or their deployment zone, roll again until another section is determined. So that's interesting if the like company commander who you took to try and instruct the mortar team to shoot better ends up on the opposite side of your deployment zone to the mortar team. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of the old um, patrol mission in uh, third edition when your force was uh, started off the board and then came on at, at random and you kind of had to work with like one or two units until uh, the rest I of your army think, turned up. I think that's a bit like the um, faltering deployment, which we will get to in a second. Yeah, um, maybe. But yeah, this one is funny if, like you say, you've got like a tank commander who ends up being on the opposite side of your deployment zone to your other tanks, for example. So all of your army is still deployed on the table, or as much as you want it to be, and all of it is deployed within your deployment zone. But you, you're going to be having to deal with who shows up on which flank and wherever else just based on the dice rolls because you're not able to coordinate where your forces arrive. You might even end up with the majority of your force in one half of your deployment zone, uh, more so than the others. You might have a really exposed flank and you'll have to deal with that. <laughs> but then your opponent will be dealing with the same struggles. Um, the second one is deferred reinforcements, which is just reinforcement units cannot be set up on the battlefield until the third or subsequent rounds and cannot be set up within 12 inches 
of enemy models. Mm. So that makes your death wing terminators far more unreliable. They're probably just going to be foot slogging it from the turn one instead. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, yeah, ruins the plans of quite a lot of units. Yeah, if anything that you would typically put in um, deep strike, like anything I put on the teleporter for my orcs, it's not going to be arriving until at least turn three. Um, and even when it does, it has to appear over 12 inches. Like, it's just so much more unreliable um, actually arriving where you need it and when you need it. Yeah, it's, it's all of these basically um, mean you can't play your army exactly how you like planned. Yes. So it, it throws it a spanner be... in the works. Yeah, it might not be hugely different. Like, you might have chosen to have a unit arrive on turn two, but instead it'll arrive on turn three. It might it might have been planning to be over 12 inches from the enemy anyway, so maybe that's not a problem. But then, it, this is any reinforcement, so this includes your um, strategic reserve units if they're arriving from table edges. You know, like, they're not going to be able to do it turn two, and they're going to have to be over 12 inches away. I really like um, those kind of things. This this adds a kind of friction to to the game that you don't always get in 40k, and that is the bane of the min max player, of course, which is, <laughs> is not the kind of folks that we are. Uh, but it, it's the thing that brings story. It's the thing that means you you don't get perfect yeah. control, and you have to adapt, and you have to play more tactically. I mean, what's nice about this is the fact that you know you're not going to be getting ambushed out of deep strike because yeah. your opponent can't appear within 12 inches of you. Yeah. You know that whatever is on the table, turn one and two, is all that's going to be on the table for turns one and two, because it's yeah. not going to be till turn three that other things are going to start getting involved. So it's it, it's just a new tactical nuance to get to grips with. It doesn't make your army any better or worse. It just makes your gentlemanship of dealing with what resources you have available mean more. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then I think, Dan, um, this third one, faltering deployment, is similar to what you were talking about. So after declaring reserves and transports, each player must separate the remaining units and army into three parts. Each part must include at least one unit, blah, blah, blah. When deploying armies, each player selects one part of their army. Only units in that part can be deployed. And reinforcements. Yeah. So the first movement phase, the player selects one of their remaining parts of their force to arrive as reinforcements. At the reinforcement step of the second movement phase, the remaining part shows up. Um, and when a player's army arrives in the reinforcement step, treat those units as arriving from strategic reserve, except that you must set them up within nine inches of that player's battlefield edge. So yeah, so your army's like divided into three. You get yeah. one third of it on the table initially. Turn two, we get the second third walks on from your battlefield edge. And turn three, the third third of it walks on from your battlefield edge yeah that's uh it's interesting because you at least in that one you know like when your units are turning up so you can plan it at the start but you do have to play the first turn with a third of your army and the second turn with two-thirds of your army or possibly less because it will have died (laughs) True. Yeah, it's very possible you could play with a third of your army, then another third, then another third. 
Is that a general positive attitude, Dan, or just uh, the words <laughs> of wisdom and experience? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, whilst the missions are intended to always be played with one of these strategic setbacks in effect, unless otherwise stated by the mission, there are then also the D6 table of afflictions that affect both armies. So this is more like um, special rules similar to theatres of war or battle zones that are going to affect the game as a whole rather than just the deployment of the armies. And it says, you know, feel free to not use these if you don't want, but you can do to, again, add another layer of difficulty and um, danger to the armies fighting in a nexus to represent the hazard that is the nexus. And I have to yeah, say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I'd always play with yeah. them because I always think that it, it's brilliant. Every time. Every time. Yeah. Well, that's it. The thing that I did notice about these is unlike a lot of the theatres of wars that basically come down to dealing some variety of mortal wounds to some units in some way, basically none of these um effects actually do direct damage they more have deliberating effects so that it's not really yeah. dealing out multiple wounds to other stuff so for example um the stilling see a seeping sense of exhaustion and lethargy creeps through each warrior limbs slacken and passions shrivel as blows are struck with fading impetus subtract one from advance and charge rolls Subtract one from the strength characteristic of all models. Oh. So suddenly you've got space marines that are striking at strength three. So while they might still be punching guardsmen, actually no, now they're punching guardsmen, they're wounding them on fours. They're punching other Astartes or Necrons and wounding them on fives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like everyone is just absolutely drained of their strength and vitality. It could be a real struggle to actually try and punch people to death. Yeah. That would be quite funny for uh, uh, like two melee armies to get that and just run up and slap each other and nothing happen. I mean, you've got stuff like um, Unnatural Dread. Units always count as being below half strength for the purposes of combat attrition. Sub and subtract one from the leadership characteristic of all models. Mm. So everyone is more likely to be failing those morale checks, and when they do, they're always going to be running away on ones and twos, not, not just ones. Yeah. Um, that's, where, that's where your um, your bonus leadership uh, battle honours and stuff come in, right? Yep. Then I have to say, one of the ones I really like is the unnerved... Um, result which is at the start of your command phase roll 2d6 for each unit from your army that is more than nine inches away from any friendly character units if the result is equal to or greater than that unit's highest leadership characteristic until the start of your next command phase it cannot perform actions or make use of the objective secured ability and you <laughs> cannot use any stratagems to affect it nor the command reroll stratagem to affect any dice rolls made for it. So basically, unless they've got commanders there on hand to either boost morale or to keep them directed and keep giving them the orders and the strategies, 
they're going to kind of sort of forget what they're trying to do or they're going to be too busy being spooked by the environment and they're just again losing their sort of edge as a, a fighting force it reminds me a little bit of the alternate uh, uh, animal instincts type rules yeah but uh, it's highly appropriate for this kind of battle zone yeah i like that the uh, all your little troops need babysitting um so yeah that's basically the gist of like the actual new rules for playing games in the prior nexus i'm just conscious of <laughs> time and how long this episode has actually been um so we won't dive in depth into the missions we'll probably no doubt make some of them the subject of some future mission focuses i think that'd be really cool but it's just worth sort of highlighting that there's 24 new crusade missions because you've got six per um scale of game um it's like combat patrol incursion etc etc um and whilst it does say there's 24 new missions i i feel like there's probably more like 12 to 18 because some of them are effectively recycled just for a different scale of game so for example all right yeah so for example one of the um so like noticeable mission uh, notable missions is the shroud for incursion um which is what page 38 let's have a look so the shroud is basically this mission played with um the veil in the middle of the battlefield so you've got you've only got um a 12 inch no man's land between the two forces so for starters that's pretty close together if you want to be. yeah yeah that's pretty close and in the center line so six inches from each battle line there is the imaginary line of the shroud and any uh, ranged attacks that fire across the shroud provide a five plus invulnerable to the target hmm. um, and all the mission objectives revolve around killing enemy units on the far side of the shroud and stopping the enemy from being on your side of it so it's all about crossing the veil (laughs) um but then there's a basically identical mission for onslaught missions um right which is basically it's just it's scaled slightly to represent the fact that it's you know a three thousand point plus game but it's still yeah, that, that mission is called the shield. <laughs> and mm. the shield. The shield has the same effect as the shroud. Yeah, but that said, there is some really good stuff in here. Like, there's um, there's a mission that's like um, assaulting um, some Necron health facilities or like uh, some Necron. Um, like power generators and basically each of the objective markers represent power nodes and you need to basically activate the power between all these nodes by controlling them and any units that are currently controlling them gain the benefits of quantum shielding (laughs) because the necron technology is shielding them as they're activating it so suddenly you can have things like your you know your repulsors with quantum shielding you can have your infantry units with it. 
that's uh, that, yeah, that could be really strong on a bunch of infantry as well. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting ones though. Like it, it's a combat patrol mission, so it's only for small forces. But um, there's a mission called Regroup, which basically um, is kind of like a King of the Hill mission because both players have two deployment zones in each corner of the board, but they're on opposite corners diagonally. So you can, yeah, but the objective of the mission is to get to and hold the center six inch bubble. So you see, between you, you, you're going to have forces starting in all four corners of the table and both, and both of you are trying to get to the center and hold it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amusing. Um, and then um, there are a couple that stand out as really unique. Like I know one that um, uh, Jake pointed out um, as one of that he took a real interest to was the fighting retreat for strike force missions. And this one's, it is pretty cool because it's basically, it's one of these missions where the attacker starts off the board and on their first turn, they walk on their battlefield edges. Right. And the defender has like 50% of the board as their deployment zone. But it's 50% divided diagonally. And there are... Yeah, it gets weirder, because there are four objective markers, which are all in the defender's deployment zone, down the opposite diagonal line. So if you imagined um, the center line of that defender's deployment zone, there's basically like a string of objective markers down it from the center of the board towards their back corner. So if you imagine the, the Scottish flag and you're talking the objective markers <laughs> are sped down one arm of it, right? Yes. Down that sort of like leg of a, a cross or an X. Um, and the, object, the, the four objective markers are numbered two, three, four, and five. Okay. Because the only objective marker that's active and is worth points at the end of a battle round is the one that corresponds to the current battle round. Ah. And they push. start at the center working backwards. So the objective marker closest to the center of the board and therefore on the furthest front point of the defender's battle uh, deployment zone is objective two. So on at the end of battle round two, whoever controls that scores the points. Then the next one down the line is objective three. At the end of turn three, whoever controls that scores the points. And so on. So it's literally this fighting retreat because as the attacker is approaching, the defender is needing to move back every turn in order to be holding the objective that scores the points. Hmm. And obviously the attacker is trying to breach into that defense and hold the beachhead whilst they're advancing. That's that's quite interesting. Uh, yeah. Using the objectives to kind of force a narrative, whereas the objectives aren't necessarily like physical things, they're just the ground you need to hold, right? Yeah. So there's some really cool stuff like there's um <laughs> there's a mission called Fueled by Faith, which is a similar thing where 
um, is basically the attacker is just declaring an open march on the defender to basically say, we are coming for you, we are going to take this ground off you, and we're just going to blatantly march down the battlefield at you. And the the defender's whole objective is to hold the centre point of the board while the attacker is like encroaching on both sides. Nice. Um, but the attacker has to explicitly try and get like their warlord to be there. Um, so they really are just declaring that they personally are marching on the objective and the rest of their attacking forces just have to try and make sure the warlord gets there and is holding it from taking off the defender by the end of the game. So yeah, it's really cool. It is. And I think it adds a lot to Crusade as a whole. I think it also sets a really good precedent if they're going to get future mission packs like this. Yeah, that's the thing that I'd say I'm most interested about it, the um, what's going to come in the future, because if we're going to get this every, well, I don't know, every, every six months or whatever, something for a different war zone, eventually you'll get some really cool stuff for all the different armies uh, in addition to what's coming in the codexes. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of options, isn't there? Yeah, and this there one's is. clearly linked to, you know, the Space Marine Necron type uh, release that we've had at the start of ninth. So uh, as we see over time, we get focuses on different armies, and I'm really hoping that we they, they, they produce those battle zones that are allied with that, because that engages more, more players who have not necessarily done narrative before uh, into trying to pick some of this stuff up. And I have to say... I think it would be really interesting to see this format of publication, so this like A5 spiral bound thing for um, role sets such as Spearhead, Planet Strike, Cities of Death. You know, it, you don't have to do a full Vigilus style publication to be able to do a rule set like this. Well, that, that looks like that's what they're planning to do if they've done it with the um, tactical uh, deployment or whatever it is. Yeah, so if you've, yeah, yeah, if you've got your, you know, your Crusade mission packs one through three, but then you've also on your, you know, your imaginary library shelf, you can have your um, tactical deployment, cities of death, you know, um, stronghold assault, um, death from the skies, like all that. That'd be really cool. Or even just give me a, give me a little catalog of battle zones, like <laughs> give me mission pack theaters of war. And just all the uh, all the different environments and worlds and different ways the galaxy can kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I have to say, on the whole, I'm very impressed by what the mission pack is, uh, by what Beyond the Veil is as a product. Um, and while it's not quite what I anticipated, I don't think there's anything really bad about it do you know what i mean like i think it is a really solid product and i think it's possibly for the first time something that you really can leave on the shelf and not bother with if you don't want to you're not missing out on anything huge but if you were really into your crusade and you really enjoyed that way of playing the game pick this up yeah definitely. like i know for example myself i've not picked up um chapter approved um, because I'm not interested in having a copy of the, you know, GW tournament mission packs. 
I don't need that. I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to play with it. But I know there'll be plenty of match play minded players out there who have not and do not need to pick this up because it's it's just not part of what their gaming repertoire at this moment in time. It's also uh, specifically not uh, like it doesn't replace any of the crusade rules, right? It's it's additional stuff. So very true. If you, if you play a lot of crusade, you still don't need it if you don't want to buy it, which is uh, is you know it's quite a good thing. It's almost kind of like Codex Prior Nexus. So if you yeah. want to play Crusade in the Prior Nexus, you buy this. But if you don't, if in six months' time you want to play lots of games based on Armageddon, then you pick up Codex Armageddon <laughs> yeah. for Crusade. Uh, yeah. It's good. It is good. And um, I highly recommend anyone that is enjoying Crusade to pick it up. I think it's definitely worth it, and I'm looking forward to future publications in this vein. Yeah. I think the other thing we've learned about this tonight, Tony, is that if you were in real life a, a 40k general, your warlord trait would be preferred enemy terrain. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. So yeah, that's uh, it, it, it has felt like both a long episode and at the same time, just a quick look at Beyond the Veil because I will no doubt be revisiting it for some mission focuses in the future. We'll probably be referring back to it for um, you know a few other things at some point. But I feel like perhaps next episode, um, maybe we discuss something other than Crusade. Because <laughs> there is it is a great new system for 9th edition narrative play and I think, you know, six hours plus of content just discussing it is evidence to that fact. <laughs> True. Yep. yep. There's a lot of it. There is. So just before we wrap everything up for tonight, um, we'll be back in a second with our community spotlights. And for the last time tonight, guys, we are back. So uh, we're just going to quickly go through some of our community spotlights and some of the stuff we've seen out there that we just want to basically shine a light on because we think it's cool and people are doing great stuff. So, uh, Dan, what have you got for us? All right. So um, uh, I've, I've, uh, I've got a, uh, an Instagram account that I'm following. Uh, it's, a, it's a man called Chris Swires. Uh, Swires dot in dot miniature is the uh, the instagram handle and he does lots of really cool conversions um he's got an imperial guard army that's all sort of heavily converted uh, to be very sort of ornate and, and gothic they've all got big plumed helmets uh they've all got um there's, there's loads of like books and scrolls and candles and everything uh and he's built some some awesome terrain out of uh Kind of mostly games workshop stuff with the um, the, the Munitorum crates and the uh, the ruins and everything. And he's, he's built these really cool sort of uh, imaginative um, setups, uh, like this. Uh, he's, he's built this kind of um, it looks like a almost like a Victorian bandstand on a tower. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of cool stuff he's done. Um, it's just uh, just one of those people who just makes a lot of cool things you didn't think of with all the, the Games Workshop kits. 
Very nice. I'll have to check that one out myself. I'm always, I'm always particularly interested to see what people do with like the scenery kits and stuff because um, there's some very inventive stuff out there that people make use of them for, which is never their intended purpose. Oh, definitely, yeah. And uh, Dave, uh, what have you got for us? Yeah, just a couple of little things. I, uh, I've not been on the podcast for a little while, and uh, I don't think I've said I was lucky enough to, to get away in the quiet period in the summer with the kids uh, and the wife to a, a holiday cottage. And uh, one of the places we went was, well, we, we stayed near Bridlington, and uh, we went into Bridlington a couple of times, of course, while we're on holiday uh, for ice cream and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the places I found in the centre of Bidlington is Mighty Lancer Games. Uh, and I was very impressed with their service and, and what they do. They've got an online store as well. And, uh, if anybody's interested in anything gaming, they're able to stop. They were very friendly, very helpful. They were talking to me about opening a gaming space as soon as they could. I suspect those plans are on hold right now, but I'm sure it'll all come mm-hmm. back again in due course. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to give them a shout-out because uh, they, they were help- friendly, helpful. I had both my girls with me, and they were they were included in conversations about D and D and the other things that the kids love as well. So, really, really good place if you're you're in and around Bridlington or visiting there. Um, and I think the the other thing I wanted to mention just was it's a little bit less formal, but it's definitely an online thing. Is one of the things that's been keeping me a little bit more sane is is connecting with friends about hobby. It's, it's difficult. Can't go out and play. We can't run our club at the moment. Uh, we don't get a chance to meet up. When it's the the COVID's a little bit quieter, we can go out and meet people. But that's and play games in garages and gardens. But that's that's not something we can we can always achieve. And certainly not we're not getting as much gaming as we're doing before. So one of the things. Uh, that's that I'm finding is happening and it is also useful and if you're not doing it I'd strongly recommend that you, you try and find a way to do it you're just having hobby hangouts with your mates the guys that you normally game with before we started recording this podcast we ended up just chatting for half an hour about what we've been doing uh, what we're working on and what yeah, we'd like we to do uh, just because we like to connect and share with other gamers that we know um, and I've been doing the same on Friday nights with a, a group of lads from our club. Um, I've even had a few calls back with uh, some of the lads that I know back up in Sheffield to see how they're doing um, and what they're working on. And just hanging out, uh, talking about things in the same uh, virtual room on, on your phone or computer or iPad or whatever you use to connect uh, on Zoom or Skype or whatever. Um, and in fact, there's one patron that uh, I'm a patron not only of the Narrative Wargamer, which is my most favourite patron, but this, I'm a patron mm-hmm. of Peacing Tomega as well. And, and he had a hobby hangout last last Saturday uh, where there's a couple of gamers dialed in. And yeah, it was great just, just sharing, doing your hobby together with other people uh, and sharing online is a really good way to, to try and get a little bit of that connectivity back when it's difficult to find. Yeah, so that's a great call. Uh, I've been uh, I've been on, on chatting on Discord with people while I've been yeah. painting minis today. Uh, it's it it yeah, it really does help make you feel like you're part of the community rather than just seeing on your own painting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's it. Just that human connection again. Awesome. Um, and then. The last thing to highlight is actually um, it's actually a little bit of a, a precursor to next episode. So the thing I wanted to talk about was the latest issue of White Dwarf. So that's issue 457. And specifically, not specifically, specifically, <laughs> start of the new Flashpoint series that 
um, is going to be debuting in Red Dwarf over probably the next year or so. Um, and I want to highlight it because it it looks like a really excellent little resource it, um, that's going to include lots of new sort of like campaign rules, gameplay stuff, things for primarily 40k. Um, and I was talking to you guys about it before the started uh, before we started recording tonight, and um, I think neither of you had heard about it or realised that this was yeah. a thing the White Dwarf was stuck to do. Um, so obviously, being that it's in White Dwarf, it is a arguably limited time publication. So I know you can currently buy, I think, like one or two months back via the Games Workshop, you know, um, sellers and stuff. You might be able to pick up some older issues at local gaming stores or wherever. But if you're interested in basically your narrative rules, your extended rules, any any of the many reasons you might have been listening to this podcast for 19 episodes, <laughs> then the new Flashpoint series is going to be something that's worth chasing and worth keeping up with. And the first of these new Flashpoint articles is the Argavon campaign. And it's um, it's a really nice little starter to it. I mean, they've said it's going to be like two or three issues and every issue will be some more rules and new additions. And like the first outline of it in part one is this system for like a three month campaign that you can play. And it, it, it works across any kind of game system you want to play. So you could do it as match play, crusade open play whatever so i think it's probably going to be the topic of the next episode and it might be that by then there might even be a new issue white dwarf with further additions to this but if you're interested there's plenty of reasons why actually i think uh, this latest issue is actually a really good issue to pick up it's got a lot of cool stuff in there there's um there's an article i need to read yet about arbitrating campaigns in necromunda Another thing I, I really like and why I picked it up, and there is even um, there's even an article by a one Garfigram that I mentioned on the last episode um, about his photography that he does with all his miniatures. So if you found his Instagram account from last episode, you'll find a, a full article dedicated to his work in this issue of White Dwarf. So yeah. Um, that's issue 457 and it even has this little like Warhammer 40k flashpoint sort of um, graphic on the front of the uh, issue so I definitely advise picking this particular issue up even if you don't normally um, get right off I know I just uh, cherry pick issues that look like they're particularly interesting to me and um, there's going to be a few flashpoint articles moving forwards that I think are going to be really good resources so um, I'm going to keep an eye on them and probably going to do some coverage on them probably next episode. <laughs> so <laughs> consider this some homework for some listeners if you want to read along. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Look what it's talking about. It does. Um, I think it's a little hidden gem that um, so a lot of people probably don't realise is being worked on by the White Dwarf team, but I actually think it's it looks like it's going to be a particularly good series to follow. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you again, guys, for coming and joining me tonight. I, uh, I appreciate it. It's been a bit of a long one and a little bit later than we normally let it run, so I'm sure, like me, you want to get to bed. <laughs> and uh, we'll wake up in a, 
a brand new lockdown world tomorrow. Uh, yeah, but we still got a chance to talk together. That's always a good bit. It right. was. So yeah, um, thanks again, guys, and I'm sure we will have you back again in the near future. No problem. And until next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, helping you discover more ways to play 40k. Bye.